politics, music, technology, roller coasters, golf carts, and the greatest country on earth. National Review's new show, the Charles C. W. Cook Podcast, that's me, explores the scenic highways and byways of American political and cultural life. Featuring interviews with leading writers, thinkers, and public figures, every episode offers a fresh perspective on the promises and challenges facing America. Don't miss out. Tune into the Charles C. W. Cook podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. Student loans, out. Compelled speech, out. Affirmative action, out. Plus, where does the American project stand on this July 4th? We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Noah Rothman, and Madeline Maddie Kearns. You are, of course, listening to a Nashville podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Waterstone and the Free the Economy podcast from CEI. If for some reason you're not already following us on the streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So Charlie, we're recording about quarter of 11 on Friday morning. We've all been sitting here waiting for the student loan Decision, which uh, maybe only with a little exaggeration, you've considered practically existential for our legal and constitutional order. There was a nervous-making moment there where the initial student loan case was unanimous that the plaintiffs didn't have standing. Some of us were unaware that there was a second (laughs) student loan case, which came down six to three with the absolute correct ruling that there's no way that the, the HEROES Act was the uh, or, or any sort of waiver or modification authority possibly could have justified the sweeping new piece of legislation that Joe Biden imposed on his own. Yes, I considered this existential because the only way that this could have been upheld by the court is if it declined to get to the merits by ruling that no party before the court had standing to sue. No one believes that Joe Biden has the authority without Congress to cancel student loans. In fact, there is, within the majority opinion, a citation of Nancy Pelosi two years ago saying bluntly that the president does not have the authority to do this, which was the consensus view and which never changed. No one discovered some novel legal argument. Congress did not pass a law. There was no intervening judicial shift in language or interpretation. Joe Biden woke up one morning and acquiesced to progressives who had lied about the law and demanded, irrespective of the respect they're supposed to show to Article 1 of the Constitution, that the president cancel student loans. That's what happened here. We all knew it had happened. What worried me was that the lack of standing would essentially permit the president to get away with it and thereby create a hole in the Constitution. Mm -hmm. Sort of hack the Constitution. Well, thereby instruct future presidents who might be tempted to do something similar. And for what it's worth, this could be done by Republicans too. 
they could say under this emergency act, if you squint a little bit and don't read all the words, I have the capacity to stop collecting taxes for six months. My worry was that we would create a hole in the Constitution where presidents could do things that on the merits were self-evidently illegal as this was, but that had been kept away from the judiciary. And that didn't happen. And this is a great thing for America. You're going to see today all manner of focus on the specifics. Chris Hayes, who is deeply dishonest over at MSNBC, has characterized this case as the Supreme Court having decided you are now $10,000 poorer than you were yesterday. Absolutely not. What the Supreme Court has decided is that the most fundamental part of our Constitution is still intact. That Congress is in charge of spending money. That Congress is in charge of forgiving debt. That Congress is in charge of the budget. And if Congress doesn't act, the President doesn't get to. On a specific note, of course, it's absurd to suggest that the people who would have been the beneficiaries of this were yesterday $10,000 richer than they are today because the president never had this authority. But the specifics don't actually matter. I have been on this hobby horse for years, whether it's President Trump's wall, which I was fine with, whether it's the DACA action that the Obama administration took, and I was sympathetic to the DREAM Act. The specifics don't matter. What matters is separation of powers. That's what separates America. Antonin mm -hmm. Scalia used to point this out. The Bill of Rights is great. And look, I love the Bill of Rights. But every country has a Bill of Rights. What keeps America free, what keeps our system intact, is separation of powers. This was a separation of powers case, not a case about student loans or equity or economics or President Biden or Republicans or Democrats or college students or landscapers. This was a case about separation of powers and the Supreme Court did its sacred responsibility, which is to uphold those separation of powers so they live another day. Yeah, and this, this is just the amount of effort in, in Anglo-American history that has been put into coming up with this system that restrains, you know, in Britain, it was the monarch, here's the, the president, and comes up a system that's representative, that's strong enough to, to govern, but it is balanced enough not to let anyone having a, a dangerous amount of sweeping authority. Wars have been fought over it, revolutions, you know, great thinkers have spent their lives, you know, arguing about this and thinking about this, and we came up with this system that, as you're saying, if you got away with this, would would have been severe, at the very least, uh, have a big hole poked in it. Now, another notable thing about the student loan case is, as Charlie alluded to, you know, the day before yesterday, everyone agreed the president didn't have this authority, or just, a, you know, a very small slice of inflamed progressives. Then he, then he turns around, says, oh, I do have this authority, and everyone suddenly agrees he has this authority, and the Supreme Court should bless it. As though that wasn't going to have any implications, right? They just waved it away as though it was some sort of a, a brain fart that we shouldn't have dwelled upon when it was a fundamental expression of his understanding of the limits of his powers. Something that comes up a lot in this decision uh, is they cite frequently last summer's decision in West Virginia, the Environmental Protection Agency, which was at root a civics lesson. It affirmed that it is in the purview of Congress, not the federal bureaucracy, 
to establish legal standards, to basically write laws. We do pretty much the same thing here, establish that it is not the president's power to simply write laws, write statute that doesn't exist in the black letter language of the HEROES Act. And it's about time that we had a court that was dedicated to that proposition, A, and B, it demonstrates how these decisions, how these legal victories for the conservative legal movement are built up over decades, that they require precedent, and precedent begets more precedent, and it establishes a series of foundations that get stronger with every decision and are harder and harder to uproot. And that's why it is so important at the political level for conservatives to um, create the conditions that eventually lead to majorities and eventually lead to presidencies and eventually get you the Supreme Court. This doesn't happen in a, in a, it happens over generations. It doesn't happen in an election cycle two or even three. And it's a lesson that I think Republicans need to learn now more than ever. They're, they're possessed of a fatalism that is really unfounded, but it fundamentally misunderstands where power comes from in this country and where the po policy outcomes that they want, that they say they want, uh, derived from. Uh, this, is, this decision didn't happen overnight, and it's, we're going to get more conditions for this because the other side has the same misapprehension. They have it worse. The politics of this are the left is going to be engaged in maximum peak and intense fatalism and over the failure of this overreach, which means they'll demand more overreaching. They'll demand more creative ways to get around the statute, and it's just going to give them more opportunities to fail. But it, it should clarify for conservatives and Republicans how this all works and why they're winning. First of all, they need to understand that they're winning, which is a hard pill to swallow for some. And second, they need to understand where those victories come from and the generations of legal spade work, mm -hmm. intellectual, philosophical spade work that contribute to them. So, Maddie, another really important decision this morning, one that is not a surprise or didn't, didn't really have a, the same drama attached to it, but this the, the so-called 303 creative case that you've paid a lot of attention to. This is a website designer who didn't want to provide her creative services for same-sex weddings. And of course, you know, this has been a, a major trend the last several years. We saw it with Jack Phillips. You know, you just can't say, no, no, thank you. Go to the web designer across the street anymore. You're going to be uh, totally uh, crushed by these uh, so-called anti-discrimination laws. What do you think of this one? Yeah, so the 2018 case that you just mentioned in Masterpiece Cake Shop left the broader question of First Amendment rights unresolved. Uh, in, in that case, the court punted on the question of uh, First Amendment speech rights and focused instead on the second claim that Jack Phillips made, which was that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission had violated his right to free exercise of religion. And the way that they did this was by describing his religious beliefs as despicable and uh, treating him with such blatant prejudice that even Justices Breyer and Justice Kagan joined the majority 7-2 decision, um, although suggested that they might not support a decision that was focused on this this first question. So why the Laurie Smith uh, 303 creative uh, case was very important was it addressed specifically this question and Laurie Smith uh, filed a pre-enforcement challenge which she lost at the district and circuit courts. Uh, the 10th circuit curiously acknowledged that this was about speech and her, her per particular artistic expression did constitute speech, that was very clear, but they were arguing that the state had a compelling interest to 
essentially compel her speech. And this really fell apart in the um, under under scrutiny and, and Justice Gorsuch uh, delivered a very clear um, majority opinion just saying, you know, how how wrong this is, how unconstitutional it is, but also how dangerous a precedent it is. Um, we, we had the, the dissenting uh, opinion from Sotomayor it contained the sort of thing you would expect. A lot of it was just sheer misrepresentation. You know, one of the crucial distinctions here is that this is denying to the, 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 this refusal that Laurie Smith um, is, is defending as constitutional is a refusal to say something she doesn't believe. It's not a refusal to serve certain clientele with protected characteristics. She made that very clear. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sotomayor sort of twists this. Um, you know, at, at one point, Gorsuch makes the point that the, the dissent gets so turned around, it sort of open fires on its own position, stressing that, yes, OK, you, you have a right to... Um, to decide what messages to include or not include. Um, it, but if, if she's conceding that, then what, what are they even debating about? Um, mm-hmm. At one point, Gorsuch says she's adrift on a sea of hypotheticals. So, uh, yeah, not, not a very persuasive dissent in this case. So, so in other words, if, if a gay person went to this website designer and said, you know, I'm opening up a floor shop, will you make the website for me? She wouldn't have had a problem absolutely yeah absolutely and she's been very clear on this um at, at every level and i think uh, i think that is recognized even um Sotomayor does recognize that although at the same time argues that i mean she, she sort of starts focusing on how this could harm other lgbt people and this could be used to sort of take away their rights and gorsuch says look we're that's not our job we're, we're focusing on the case before us and the case before us is very clear so, Charlie Cook, X a question to you, not in terms of who's in the majority and who's in the minority and who's who's winning these cases and who's le- losing, but just in terms of analytical rigor, the level of thought and writing, the conservative justices are outclassing the progressive justices massively, moderately, not at all. Massively, it's notable that in a good number of these high-profile cases, the ones that get the attention, Elena Kagan has been quiet, and that has made the progressive jurists look worse, because Mm -hmm. Kagan is brilliant. The other two are not. But if you look, for example, at yesterday's affirmative action case, you will see a profound difference in writing ability, analytical ability, and jurisprudential roots between the six justices who are described as right of center and the three who are on the left. Noah? Massively doesn't even do it justice. Uh, it's galactic. There's, ah, there's, I should have thought of that. There's Yes, I mean, like, we could just come up with superlatives here all day long. Uh, just to brief, I mean, we're going to talk about Katanji Brown-Jackson in the next segment, but just to briefly on Sotomayor's dissent in the 303 case, people, she does such a profound disservice to the people who look to her for at least rhetorical ammunition to justify their position. She, you know, it's a sad day and all that appeals to emotion. The notion that you can discriminate against a protected class here has been affirmed is nonsense. Nobody stipulated that anybody couldn't serve gay people here. And then she cites the, she contends that this will reinvigorate hate by citing the Pulse nightclub shooting and the killing of Matthew Shepard as examples of people seeking out uh, gay people to attack them and murder them for their orientation. Both of those cases, 
do not justify that claim. She, she, it's like she asked her clerks, to, hey, find somebody who was killed for being gay and came up with these two very disputable cases. The notion here that the Pulse nightclub was anything other than an ISIS-inspired attack and in Matthew Shepard's case, there's a lot of dispute about what that was actually about. It just muddies the waters and does a real disservice to the people who look to these justices for guidance. Maddie Kearns lists add galactic as a possibility. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'll say galactic, and I think that was very well said by Noah. That it's not—it's not just that they, they're outclassed rhetorically. There's also a question of just honest representation here. Yeah, it, uh, in politics, uh, I'm afraid very often as conservatives, we're not sending our best people to be nominated for for high office. <laughs> not the most impressive people, but here, these these six justices, and we, we all have our problems with some of them, and especially. John Roberts, just really impressive jurists, legal minds, writers. Elena Kagan, as Charlie said, is is brilliant, and and the other two are just uh, uh, it's best left unsaid. With that, let's go to our first sponsor this episode, Waterstone. When Patricia tried to donate to a conservative organization through her donor advised fund, her request was denied. Why? Because they said she was trying to give to a hate group. That's why she switched to Waterstone, a donor-advised fund dedicated to upholding Judeo-Christian values. Waterstone is unique in the world of donor-advised funds. It accepts gifts of cash as well as real estate, business interest, oil, and more. They can help you receive an immediate tax deduction and make a difference for the charity of your choosing. With this charitable pooled trust, you can even generate a guaranteed income stream from your charitable giving. Waterstone strictly adheres to a Christian statement of faith, including a pro-life declaration, and does not give to charities that contradict those values. Waterstone is trusted by so many men and women of conviction that they give $10 million per month and charitable grants. They can work with you or your financial advisor to make a giving strategy that fits your needs. Contact Waterstone's giving strategies team today for more information by visiting waterstone.org. That's waterstone.org. Please check it out. So Noah, yesterday we had a big bomb go off in this affirmative action case. This also widely anticipated Robert's writing for the court finds that discriminating against people in college admissions is uh, illegal under the Civil Rights Act and unconstitutional under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. The Civil Rights Act seems just absolutely black and white clear. There's some debate about the, the 14th Amendment. Some of our colleagues aren't so convinced of that, but what did you make of it? Yeah, I can't speak. I'm not a lawyer, so I can't speak to whether this should have been statutory or constitutional. But the outcome was right, and the outcome is one that has been retailed for, a long, again, generations contributed, generations of uh, legal thought and philosophy and, and previous court decisions contributed to this decision. And it is it presents a set of political conditions that, and I wrote a post on this for the coroner yesterday, that really put progressives in a bad place insofar as it's it's almost the anti-Dobbs, because affirmative action was not popular. Affirmative action as a status quo was not well-liked by most Americans. And for really basic emotional uh, re uh, rationales on what it means to be an American and the nature of meritocracy itself, and whether discrimination, positive discrimination as a remedy for negative discrimination in the past is just and righteous. And it cuts at the heart of all that stuff. And progressives are on the wrong side of it. But now they, unlike Dobbs, 
have to articulate their vision for how this, how we should revise the social contract in order to discriminate positively in ways that they like. And they're going to have an ample opportunity to step on all the landmines before them. Nobody's going to take the mic away from them when they articulate what vision for the kind of discriminatory regime they would like to see. And there's going to be plenty of colleges around there out here uh, who try to work around the majority decision uh, in various creative ways that are fundamentally discriminatory. And there are a lot of Democrats. I can't tell you how many people who identify as, as Democrats, vote Democratic, wouldn't, wouldn't pull the lever for a Republican if you put a gun against their head, who are happy with this decision, who think it is a righteous, just decision. And the arguments that progressives are going to want Democrats to make, the loudest people in the room who they are inordinately responsive to, are going to put them in terrible political positions next year. So, Maddie, the... Uh Relevant to the ex last exit question, Katanji Brown Jackson's dissent in this case is one, a disgrace, and two, embarrassing. I mean, just the, the level of writing alone, you, you wonder how, how it uh, uh, passed muster with any competent editor she has on her uh, staff or anyone knows how to construct a, a sentence and use a metaphor. And she was destroyed in the sense of the, you know, the old cliched internet headline that used to be the, the hot thing, you know, all caps destroyed <laughs> by Clarence Thomas. And the, the, among the problems with her dissent is, is, as he says, it's literally a black and white world. There are no other types of people in America, despite all the emphasis on diversity, right? There, there are no Asian American <laughs> or Asian Americans or Asian American immigrants. There are no black immigrants who might, their families might be quite successful and might have zero um, contact ever with slavery in the United States. There, there are no whites who have a hard scrabble upbringing that's been tougher than an upper middle class black kid that's, that's gone to a prep school. It's all black and white. It's, it's all um, making up for past sins, although you know, that's, that's no longer really the, the, the justification they offer. It goes to diversity and the supposed educational benefits of diversity that I, I'm quite skeptical of. There, I mean, there, there's some benefits, and as Thomas points out, a lot of the benefits they point to are you know, making you a better person or preparing you to, to succeed when you go, go out to the, the broader world. But those aren't educational uh, benefits. And I, I think Thomas made a very compelling point. It's like, so if, if racial diversity is, is a thing and it's not socioeconomic, it's not geographic, it's not philosophical, none of that. Racial is the main thing. Why, why do we have historically black colleges? Shouldn't they be these, these terrible educational and social sinkholes because they're 90% black or whatever it is? No, a, a lot of them do a tremendous job in, in educating uh, their students and preparing them uh, to, to um, succeed when they leave college. Yeah, so Jackson, who obviously recused herself from the, the Harvard case, uh, although still wrote at length about it, um, basically said the court had condoned systemic racism in, in the US. And we're very familiar with this, this narrative at this point. But it is historically inaccurate because, of course, pr the principle of constitutional colorblindness, um, which has informed a lot of the Supreme Court's decision making since uh, 19, the 1950s, came from Brown v. Board of Education, uh, which outlawed segregation. And I think Justice Roberts made this 
very clear in his point that ending discriminate racial discrimination means ending all of it and this is just a, a a new a new form of it basically and it disproportionately um harms asian americans um and yes okay in the in the 1970s there and again uh you know later in the 2000s there was a supreme court ruling saying that in certain narrow situations race could be used as a factor among other factors in college admissions, I think it was, as as you've mentioned, very unpopular with the public. It, it was very unfair, um, not just unfair on those who lose lose places despite being uh, top tier candidates, but it's also unfair on those who are, um, you know, parachuted into top tier schools when when they would actually do much better at schools. Uh, lesser uh, competitive schools where they would excel and, and be um, first-rate candidates. Uh, uh, so I, I really I think that it's um, yeah it's it's a much needed decision and I think the the right one. Charlie. Well, I have never really understood the case for the courts upholding affirmative action because I think if you look at it on a textualist basis or you look at it on a living constitutionalist basis, you should come to the same conclusion. The textualist basis, and I say textualist as opposed to originalist because I think the strongest case against affirmative action is the 1964 Civil Rights Act seems to be a slam dunk. The 1964 Civil Rights Act outlaws racial discrimination in institutions that Congress funds. That kills affirmative action. Justice Gorsuch pointed this out in his concurrence in yesterday's case, but the rationale for the striking down was the 14th Amendment, which I must confess I know a little bit less about. The 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause and parts of the Civil Rights Act have been fused in American law by design, and so the way they interact can get quite complex. But suppose you don't think like that, which you should. Suppose instead you believe that the Supreme Court should be a legislature, that it derives its legitimacy from the majority, that the Constitution needs to be fluffed up a bit and read from different angles to accommodate modernity. Where is the popular case for affirmative action? In her dissent, Sonia Sotomayor included some language that implied that there is this great yearning out in the land for affirmative action and that the court was standing in the way of this. But that's nonsense. This is one of the few cases in American life on which Americans agree. Supermajorities of Americans think that affirmative action is wrong in public universities and that affirmative action is wrong in private universities. Supermajorities of Republicans believe this, supermajorities of independents believe this, and large majorities of Democrats believe this. So, given that the textualist case, and I think to some extent the originalist case, and the popular case are both there, I am baffled as to why it has taken this long to strike down because the two major philosophical approaches we have in our politics which are we should do what the law says and we should do what the country wants support it's being mixed noah rothman exit question to you affirmative action is dead 
as a practical matter, hanging on by a thread or going to be just fine? It is hanging on by a thread because colleges and universities that are committed to uh, racial discrimination in the name of diversity will try to find ways around this. And the, the majority opinion is an invitation to lawsuits. And there will be uh, efforts just, just to... Cause it leaves, leave, just because it leaves that opening, you know, you can talk about your you, race and your essay. You can self-describe, mm -hmm. right? And, and colleges can perhaps solicit in creative ways, and some have intended, su suggested they intend to do so, Harvard, Princeton University, others. Um, and they will try. And uh, there will be more... Uh, more uh, work to be done in the courts about, you know, how to enforce this provision. But it is, it is basically done. It's on life support. It just, it's a matter of time before somebody pulls the plug. Maddie Kearns. Yeah, I think it's pretty much dead. Although, and, and I would note the, the line in there that says you can talk about race as long as it's related to character or whatever. It, they do include in that um, the, the statement that what, what is forbidden directly is also forbidden indirectly. Of course, there's, there's a question of how you enforce that, but I think it is pretty clear that this is prohibited in all its forms. Charlie? I think it will continue to be difficult to enforce, even with the court's attempts to close the back door by proxy affirmative action mechanisms that John Roberts anticipates. But I think that it matters what the government says and what the Supreme Court says about the law. And in that regard, this is emphatic. You cannot outlaw all instances of wrongdoing in a country. We will always be imperfect. Governments and private citizens alike are going to break the law. But it really matters what the government and especially the highest court in the land says about the law. It matters that we by constitutional amendment, overruled Dred Scott, even if for a long time after that, unfortunately, we didn't live up to it. And this was the Supreme Court saying that we do not tolerate racial discrimination. And in that regard, I think it was about as emphatic as this court was going to get, with the details to be worked out in the coming years in litigation. Yeah, I'm going to go with thread, but tick a little over on the... Um on the going to be just fine side of thread because there, there's going to be obviously these people are going to be hugely motivated at these colleges and universities to find a way around it it's gotten it's gotten a lot harder um a, a lot of places will just give up and actually be fair in their admissions process but but uh, a, a lot of folks are obviously going to try to found every single workaround and and basically ha have told us as much Already with that, let's hear from our second sponsor, health, wealth, and happiness, three goals that are essential to our lives, but attaining them is often impeded by heavy-handed government controls. That's why we must free the economy. Free the Economy is a weekly podcast produced by the Competitive Enterprise Institute that documents the opportunities for financial success and self-fulfillment in a world with less government control. How can smart urbanism improve our lives? Where is economic freedom under attack? How can we unleash the potential of small business owners and innovators? Each week, host Richard Morrison offers news you can use in fascinating conversations with experts in their fields to answer these questions and more. I think we can all agree freedom is contagious, so check out Free the Economy wherever you listen to podcasts or visit cei.org slash free the economy. Please check it out. So we're recording a couple days 
before July 4th, a very long weekend in uh, people's, most people's future here. So, Maddie, I thought we'd, uh, we'd talk a little bit about uh, America, but maybe from a, a slightly different angle than we have uh, in past years where, where we've talked a lot about um, the 1619 type critique of America and pushback against that. But uh, a, a lot of us on the right have uh, a lot of critiques about America as well. Obviously, the, the abortion regime has been one over the last 50 years. Now you have this, this phenomenon where American civil society is really turned on itself. A lot of the things we complain about, the illiberalism, the cancel, cancellations, the fear of speaking your mind, which you don't associate with a free society, is not coming from you know, the heavy hand of, of government. It may contribute, but it is, is being driven by private actors in American society. How disturbing is that? I guess more to the point, how does that, that make you think about the American project? Has it fundamentally gone off the rails? Has it had something hiding there in its DNA all along that's now kind of jumped out and been made evident, as some of the integralists and post-liberals would argue? No, I, I think these problems that you're talking about are uncharacteristic of America, and they are un-American, really, to, to be fighting against uh, free speech, to be fighting against freedom of religion, um, <clears throat> to be fighting against America in general as a, as, a, as a concept, as an idea, and saying it's intrinsically racist or, or harmful or whatever. I think these are, these are un-American, and actually, you know, just coming off the last segment, the Constitution does hold. Uh, it does work. It, even when um, tested and and uh, you know really just attacked from from every angle, these things do prevail, and the American spirit does prevail. And you're right. Like we're we're in a we're amidst of a of a fight for for Americans' soul to borrow from <laughs> borrow from President Biden. Mm -hmm. But um, but but I think I think it, it is a fight that can be won. And I always remember the late Roger Scruton being asked what the difference was between British conservatism and American conservatism. And he, and he made the point that American conservatives don't apologize for being conservative. Like they really mean it. They really have this commendable fighting spirit. They really want to conserve things because they, they think they believe in their country and they think it's good. And, and, um, and so that, that's certainly what attracted me to America. I think that still exists. Um, I also have just different expectations for, for life anyway that I think a lot of progressives do. You know, I don't expect uh, America ever to be, or anywhere, frankly, ever to be a utopia. I think there's mm -hmm. always going to be um, a lot of difficulties and a lot of disappointments. But I think that um, if this is as good as it gets, it's still, it's still pretty good when you compare it to all the rest of the world. All right, pretty good. Think about that uh, over your, your barbecues <laughs> this, uh, this weekend. <laughs> Uh, this holiday. So Charlie, so Maddie said, you know, we we're talking about these cases and the Constitution held, but you weren't certain about that. And does that, um, does that speak to a unique threat that's, that's grown up in America, contemporary America r recently? Or is this just uh, an endemic feature of um, society, human nature, that liberty and the protections of liberty, the structures of liberty are, are always under threat, the way we, uh, you know, Ronald Reagan has a famous quote about this. The latter. The United States is not impervious to the tides of history. Something I often say when people ask about the future, 
is that conservatism will eventually prevail because it's true unless we have an absolute collapse. If you look throughout history, you see countries renewing themselves by going back to ancient truths about economics or human nature or law until they don't. And then you have the collapse of empires and eventually, I assume the same thing will happen to the United States. But America is in a much better position against that universal threat than any other country because it has the strongest and best conceived constitution which accepts as its central premise that human beings are the same now as they have ever been. This was Woodrow Wilson's greatest mistake. He thought that because we had telephones and airplanes and electricity, that the Constitution was somehow outdated. But the Constitution is not contingent upon the state of technology. The Constitution is contingent upon the existence of evil and ambition. And as a result, it has survived and it will survive if it is sustained by each generation. I was, as I said, particularly worried about this case because you do see in history these inflection points at which constitutional principles or national cultural norms become eroded and get you closer to the end. But I think what we've seen, thankfully, in this Supreme Court term is a repudiation of those who would accelerate us toward that and, mm -hmm. and a renewal of core American values such as free speech and religious liberty, which is really pluralism, and separation of powers and racial equality and so on and so forth. So, Noah, one way to look at this in terms of the, the critique of America from the left and its past and its history, you know, one way to, to prism through which to view it is like compared to what? You know, we, we had desperate flaws as as a country so, so did every other country in society but the english-speaking world uh, in particular you know it was um f fairly liberal at a time when other societies you know there there was the the uh, still kind of barbarous medieval style tyranny ruled and you know people were getting tortured and eaten uh, alive and and all the rest of it and in terms of the the current conservative discontents with America, and they're, they're real and um, ha have to be taken seriously, and, and we share them all uh, at some level, you, you still got to compare to what? You know, Norway, Hungary, like where? What, what country is freer, more prosperous, and more powerful, and has better prospects if we get things right? We you know, have to get big things right. You always do than the United States of America. Compared to what is often almost the only question that needs to be asked of a hot-button policy issue or controversy that's dominating the media in this particular moment. And you can identify the serious interlocutors because they grapple with compared to what. Those who do not sidestep the question or discuss uh, abstractions, theories, hypotheticals, the idea of the perfect, uh, and it's just simply a rejection of human nature. To articulate why the United States is the best country on the planet Earth, as I believe my patriotism is unconditional, is to do a disservice to the concept. You'll invariably fail in the emphasis. But 
one that I think needs to be emphasized now in light of this decision, and it's one that conservatives would do well to take heart in, is on balance, this country is unique among advanced democracies on the planet Earth in its resistance to adopting fad and fashion in law. It's not unresponsive to fad and fashion. The, the governments are composed of human beings. They're sensitive to that sort of thing. But the founders, in their wisdom, erected obstacles to the adoption of ephemera and to creating sentiment as the basis for legal change and, and alterations to the social compact. And on balance, not entirely, but on balance, that pertains today. And it is a profound and unique feature of the American system that has endured for nearly 250 years now. And it's one we should be immensely... So no, when you say patriotism is, is, is unconditional, so hypothetically, would you have been... Your patriotism would have been not budged an inch, say, if there's a six to three progressive court and every single one of these decisions that we just talked about, they're so important, went the other way? My patriotism would not have budged in the same way that if, uh, that if, for example, I caught my children mm -hmm. uh, trying to uh, steal candy the other day or empty out human waste into my <laughs> trash can. Yes, that actually happened. <laughs> I was very disappointed in them, but I would still love So it's them. like a familial connection to the country. Yes. Quite literally unconditional. So, Maddie, let's hit another angle on this, and then we'll uh, go. So a, a, a huge element, d despite um, some criticism from the new right, of the preservation of this order, to the extent it's been preserved, has been conservatism post-World War II conservatism. The definition of that is up for grabs. Its political viability is up for grabs. H how do you think about the um, conservative project that is focused on pr conserving America at the moment? Is there a risk of, of losing that? Um, well, I think it's important to separate political conservatism from cultural conservatism and I, I think that political conservatism is at risk frankly it's obviously the Trump effect um, which continues uh, continues to, to to make that very unstable and uh, we're not entirely sure what direction it's going in and how long lived this strange bizarre chapter of uh, political history is going to last so I am very concerned about that but in terms of cultural conservatism I, I know that the, the numbers are, are low in terms of people who um, perhaps share our worldview or, or just get on with the, the everyday business of, of living their lives um, according to these principles. But I do think that that, that um, is strong. It's small but strong. And those are the types of subcultures that flourish and produce children who are well-adjusted and go out into the world and want to make a positive difference. So... Um, just from my own life, I, I'm, I'm quite confident about that cultural conservatism. Charlie? Well, I think this is a reminder that conservatism ebbs and flows and does so in different areas. It feels pretty conservative where I am here in Florida. It's less so nationally at the congressional level, but the Supreme Court is doing the best work it's done in a long time. We have had relatively recently in our history periods in which conservatism was electorally rejected and periods in which no one was really advancing it except perhaps National Review in the 1970s. So I, I think there are a lot of signs of hope. I just think that the party 
which is the main vehicle for conservatism, the Republican Party, needs to recognize that the choices that it makes in the next few months are going to have a great effect on the ability of conservatives to advance conservatism and to persuade a public that seems quite persuadable that we are right. I certainly don't think it's dead. I don't think we're in as dire straits as we were in the 1970s. And I think this last week or two shows there's a great deal to be pleased about even now. Noah Rothman, impossible X question to you first. We're going to double barrel it. The impossible question comes first. America as we know it, as a uh, significant world power, as a, a liberal polity with a, a glorious constitutional order, will continue to exist 50 years from now, 100 years from now, 250 years from now, or even longer? That is an impossible question to answer, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> um, as we understand it today, on your terms, a, a great world power um, with a profoundly large extroverted footprint in the world, and a liberal polity, um, relatively more so than most committed to classically liberal governance. Uh, I think it survives for at least a century, perhaps another 250 years, or perhaps longer. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean it will endure forever. Nothing lasts forever. All things end. But I don't foresee that kind of crisis in which the United States agrees among itself to dissolve the experiment, because mm -hmm. that's what it would take. So it's kind of a, a Roman Republic slash empire. I mean, there's a big change there. Style run, hundreds of years. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, ca I can't envision the scenario, the Roman scenario in which uh, its holdings abroad lose their attachment to the idea of being American and to the experiment itself, and subsequently turn on their benefactors in pursuit of whatever whatever they can you know strip from the from the decaying edifice of the United States as long as it, it lasts I don't see that happening the prospect of an anytime soon at least I mean within the next 250 years the prospect of a Soviet Union style well we're just spent and defunct and the whole the whole experiment is founded on a lie which is what dissolved the Soviet Union the opening of the records indicating that the adoption and the the, the subsumation of the Baltic states was the result of a pact with Hitler undermined the very idea of the Soviet Union that it had created for itself in the post-war period, that it was an anti-Nazi state. And that alone undermined the very idea of the country. So that's my biggest fear, mm -hmm. that sort of scenario in have, which we have you, have you written that, that by the, the way? whole thing is a lie. Have you written that? Uh, I have not. You should, you should, should write I? that. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's insightful. But this podcast has tons of insights. Maddie Kearns, your insights on 50, 100, or 250 years. <laughs> well... I'm going to pick something that, um, if I'm wrong, I won't be around to deal with <laughs> <laughs> so, Yeah, I'm don't just pick. go with the crowd on this one, Maddie. It's too consequential. Uh, I'm going to say 250. Mm. I, don't, I don't know why. I'm just, I'm feeling, maybe it's wow. just the, the Supreme Court decisions. Yes. I'm, I'm feeling buoyed. And yeah, I'm, I, th I think we're, we're in it for the long haul. Charlie. I would predict that we will be in this position for at least another century. I'd also observe, as I have before, that it's not quite right to date American hegemony to 1945 if you see the broad, small-L liberal 
ideal mm-hmm, as part that of the United States exists to uphold as being reflected in the British Empire. And, you know, we're worried about a Russia or a China, and we should be, but we actually have not had a world dominated by a non-liberal power, at least not outside of temporary moments within wars, since the Battle of Waterloo. And as such, it's not just that I have confidence that the United States will remain in this position, but that I suspect that the Western world, broadly construed, will. And that means naval supremacy. It means military hegemony. It means free trade. That doesn't mean you can't have any tariffs at all. But as a broad position, it means free trade. Uh, I think we're going to keep that position. So I'm less, less confident just because I, I, I really don't know, and I know n- none of us know, but I, I would say 50 years. I mean, one of the big threats, obviously, is either losing a major war or winning, kind of the, the uh, British example, winning a ruinously expensive major war. And that, that could easily be in our future, um, the next uh, decade. Or two, so I'm just going to register just a, a little more note of uh, a caution uh, than my colleagues on this one. Second part of the barrel. This is easier, Noah. Your favorite July Fourth tradition? That's not as easy as you think it is. Really? I don't Do you want me to come back to you. I, I don't really have any July Fourth traditions. What? I mean. No, I guess. Just F- like favorite thing to do. Favorite thing to do, do on July Fourth. Twice every year. I mean, there's always something different going on. We don't have any any set traditions beyond. So, know, so you're telling me you can you can answer you can answer with confidence how long the American Republic will stand, but have no idea whether you like uh, prefer hot dogs on July Fourth or fireworks. Or- I put it that way. Yeah. Um, I suppose yes. My my tradition is to uh, exult in reverence for the experiment. All right. Constitution. I will do that again this year. <laughs> Maddie Kearns. Uh, I like wearing red, white, and blue. Uh, there you go. Really, really, really bright. So this year, I think I'm going to wear a bright red dress with some big blue earrings. Awesome. And, See, and, how, and how hard was that, Noah? <laughs> you'd be, you'd and sorry, are you going to say something else, Maddie? I, w- I was just going to add that the, the white is covered by my Celtic complexion. So. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Charlie Cook. The golf cart parade. Oh, uh, of course. Yeah. I think every year I text you photos of it. Mm-hmm. Here in my little beach town, we have a golf cart parade. The best golf cart gets a prize. They're not evaluating the golf cart. They're evaluating the way it's themed. Some people really do put a lot of time and effort and money into it. The best one I've seen while I was here was a colonial era galleon that someone had built. (laughs) Golf cart underneath, but the boat all around the cart to the point at which you couldn't see anything except the wheels if you peeked. Awesome. So it's hard for me to pick. Reading the Declaration is is awesome. Um, small town parades. This is why I love getting the picture of, of Charlie's uh, golf cart parade and and fireworks. Although as I've gotten older, I, I can't do the blanket on the grass or lugging lawn chairs somewhere to watch fireworks. But if I if I have if I'm some comfortable distance from fireworks, I know other countries have fireworks. I'm not that parochial, but there's something so American about the sound of it. You know, you're not, it's 9.15, it's still a little, still a little light in the sky because it's the middle of, of summer. It, it, and the, you know, the, the, uh, the applause and the oohs and the ahs and the sounds of, of kids screaming and kids running around with flares and sparklers and all of it. It's just, 
I just love it. It's uh, there are a few things that are better. With that, let's hit a few other things before we go. Noah, you got some shed roof reshingling ahead of you. Yeah, I'm pretty trepidatious about this one. So I got it. I have a little shed that's converted into something of a pool house on the side of my pool, uh, and it's just a mess. The shingles are falling apart, and I had a guy come in to take a look at it, lifted up the shingles, and all the plywood is rotted out. So it's a big job. He gave me a quote, and my neighbor who's very handy, uh, insists upon me and him doing this ourselves. And I broke down. I have consented to it. It could save a lot of cash, but I'm not handy. I don't use tools very frequently, and when I do, I don't use them well. So this will be a, a big experiment, but I'm going to try to do this small-scale roof reshingling. Maddie, you made some awesome lasagna recently. I did, yeah. Uh... <laughs> If that's not too immodest, um, I had we had some friends coming over for for dinner, and uh, were you eating it? I was. Rich e- asked the question. <laughs> <laughs> no, it just come on, Charlie. Does no one else get to pause in this podcast? <laughs> it's out of character. Uh, I know. Sorry, um, I was off in a daydream about the lasagna <laughs> naturally, uh, but yeah, no, I um, I didn't have a recipe, so I looked online for a while, and I and I finally found one recipe that had uh, that talked you through why it made each decision because there's a lot of choice with lasagna like do I do white sauce red sauce both do I you know use just beef or do I use beef add sausage or anyway there's a lot that lot you can put into it and this recipe uh, not only gave uh, instructions and ingredients but explained why it had made each decision um, so I had a lot of confidence going in and uh, I, I did I did awesome. pull it off it was good That's good fantastic. lasagna Charlie, you, you have been your, your your personal life has been uh, significantly uh, affected by the student loan thing. I'm breaking the rule here because this isn't a non-political light item, but this student loan case for me was huge. As you have noticed, it animated me more than any other story in the last two years because I thought that it was a stress test of our constitutional order and essentially that it would determine whether or not our elections fundamentally matter. In one sense, I saw it as equivalent to the other story that has riled me up, which was Trump trying to steal the election, saying, forget what the law says, I'm going to reinterpret it to get what I want. Well, no, you're not. And I have breathed a sigh of relief today because the system stood and I suppose I can move on to writing about something else. So I watched the other night, Domingo Herman, the Yankee pitcher's perfect game, only the 24th perfect game in Major League history, the fourth in Yankee history. I have a soft spot for Domingo. He is not uh, the most upstanding fella, apparently. He had a big suspension a couple of years ago for a domestic violence incident. He was suspended again this year for 10 games for uh, just cheating a little bit with some s- sticky stuff on his fingers, but I've spent some time when I've gone to Yankee games in person recently out near the bullpen, and he's a lively guy. He's, he's a lot of fun. He nearly threw a ball to me. Um, uh, I guess, was it last year? I, I, I forget, but just I just missed it, and I just love his, uh, his build. I love this kind of lanky, whip-strong type pitcher build, and it's just, you know, in sports in general, especially baseball, you just never know that the prior two outings Five and a third innings, 17 runs, 17 runs. This is like, you, you know, we're, we're sending you back to, to Scranton tomorrow, guy. And he pitches a perfect game. And it was, uh, it was so it was, it was truly 
extraordinary and a lot of fun with that. It's time for our editor's picks. Maddie Kearns, what's your pick? My pick is Armin White's demolishing of uh, the uh, latest Indiana Jones movie. Destroying. Um, Sometimes, yeah, yeah. Destroying, (laughs) capital letters. Sometimes sometimes reading negative reviews is like really entertaining. Um, And this is one such occasion. Noah, what's your pick? I am going with our own Charles C.W. Cooks. The Supreme Court's low approval ratings have nothing to do with its rulings. And as he typically does in, in a way that I find very difficult to do, is cuts through all the detritus that lards up these arguments around around the Supreme Court, notes that so many of its findings are on the right side of public opinion, uh, but more, you know, more or less, and quote the following. All told, one would do better to conclude that the diminishment in the court's approval numbers has had as much to do with the endless series of fake scandals that have been cooked up around it as with the recent decisions that the nine justices have offered up. And that's absolutely true. This is a concerted campaign to undermine the court's legitimacy in order to sweep it away, amend it, do something with it that would advance the progressive project. Charlie, what's your pick? I just want to praise Dan McLaughlin for the speed with which he delivers these 2,000-word explanations of what just happened in a Supreme Court case. I'm relatively good at reading Supreme Court cases. I've learned enough to support myself. But Dan has been doing this for years. He has an encyclopedic memory. He connects one case to another, even if it's not cited in the text. And somehow his take is up on National Review within two hours of a 200-250 page opinion coming down. So he is invaluable at this time of year. So Charlie, usually you, uh, you know, someone else might take your pick. In, in this case, you've taken my person. <laughs> I, I was going to, I'll stick with Dan because I'm going to highlight a slightly different uh, aspect. Well, the, the same aspect. I'll just put the emphasis uh, on a different part of it. Just the, the sheer thoroughness. I, I mean, the speed is amazing too, but just, just the thoroughness. And just at a time like this, just knowing um, you're, you're going to get uh, a, a just a locked down, completely airtight analysis of, of what just happened. Especially if you yourself might not be able to read the 278-page opinion that came down, just came down, is really valuable. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National U podcast and a rebroadcast, retransmission, or count this game without the express written permission of National U Magazine. It's strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shuddy, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Maddie. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Noah. Thanks to Waterstone and Free the Economy podcast. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We are the editors and have a great fourth, everyone.